You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 64. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today we continue with our reading of the Hagakure, the Book of the Samurai. Today we're in chapter 4, entitled, Win Nabeshima Tadanao. That's it. That's the title. <laughs> no ellipses, nothing, just Win Nabashima Tadanao. But if you want, go back, listen to the previous three episodes, the previous three chapters, to catch up to speed on what we're going to read today in chapter 4. It's a very interesting scenario that sets up or begins chapter 4 about this, this engagement this conflict between a servant in the kitchen and a foot soldier, and then the fallout from that and what Nabashima has to say about that. So let's just dive right into it. It's good stuff. When Nabashima Tadanao was 15 years old, a manservant in the kitchen committed some rude act, and a foot soldier was about to beat him. But in the end, the servant cut the soldier down. The clan elders deemed the death sentence appropriate, saying that the man had in the first place erred in matters concerning the ranks of men, and that he had also shed the blood of his opponent. Tadanao heard this and said, Which is worse, to err in matters concerning the ranks of men, or to stray from the way of the samurai? The elders were unable to answer. Then Tadanao said, I have read that when the crime itself is unclear, the punishment should be light. Put him in confinement for a while. And that's the end of the first thought in this chapter. That Nabashima, as a boy, finds out, learns of this altercation, this conflict in the kitchen or wherever it played itself out at, between a manservant and a foot soldier, a warrior. And in Japanese feudal society, it's a hierarchy. There's a feudal order to society. And a foot soldier, a warrior, is above a kitchen servant. And yet, when this soldier decides, I'm going to beat this servant to, tr to teach him a lesson, you don't disrespect me or disrespect others of higher rank in the social order, the servant turns on the soldier, refuses to take the beating, and kills him. Then the case goes to the clan elders, the tribal elders, who are expected to be the purveyors of wisdom in this society, for their clan in particular, and they deem death appropriate as a punishment for this servant's actions in retaliation for the foot soldier deciding coming to beat him. Why? He erred kind of twice, kind of twofold error here. One, you don't attack someone who's above you in the social hierarchy. You forget your place. You were disrespectful. You're expected to take your beating that's the way this works. Second, he had shed the blood of his opponent. So we know, listen, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You shed a man's blood, your blood must be shed. You shed the blood of a man above you in the social ranks, also a foot soldier, a warrior. That's a big no-no in this society. Therefore, you deserve to die. And yet Tadano asks the question, which is worse? to err in matters concerning the ranks of men or to stray from the way of the samurai. Now the soldier, by beating someone who was lower than him in the social hierarchy, 
someone who had disrespected him but not struck a blow against him. He had strayed from the way of the samurai. He wasn't acting honorably by attacking someone lower than him, lesser than him. He wasn't exercising good judgment. Is this really the best way to represent the shogun, his master? Did he embrace the fourfold vows of the samurai class when he decided to beat this servant for being disrespectful? It's implied, no, he wasn't acting in the way of the samurai. He strayed from the way of the samurai. And so who really is more at fault, more to blame? Who is, who is guilty of the greater trespass, according to Tadano's logic? The soldier was, not the servant. Yes, the servant erred in matters concerning the ranks of men. He punched up. He, he basically attacked someone who was higher in social rank than him. And that's wrong within this system. And yet, there is a higher transcendent system of justice, of righteousness, of conduct, of discipline, and that's the way of the samurai. And so Tadano argues that I have read that when the crime itself is unclear, what did the servant say that was so disrespectful? And what did he say that was so disrespectful that it would cause this soldier to want to beat him? And what did the soldier do or say that would then essentially motivate the servant to turn and murder him? And Totano's argument then is that the crime itself is rather unclear, and we're basing our judgment on social class rather than on the way of the samurai, this more transcendent set of principles and ethics. So rather than execute this servant for violating the social norms, for straying you know, outside the ranks of men, so to speak, within the society... Let's first look at the soldier and how he strayed from the way of the samurai, which is a much grosser violation of ethics, morality, law, justice. And as a consequence, let's look at the servant and say, you were just defending yourself. And in the end, it is the soldier's fault. It is the warrior's fault for the way that this turned out. So do we punish you for being disrespectful? Sure, we'll put you in confinement for a while. Should we execute you because the samurai acted dishonorably toward you? No. No, you shouldn't be punished for the bad behavior of the samurai, of the warrior. And again, he's just a foot soldier, but nonetheless, I think that that in and of itself is a conversation when we put the word just in front of something. Well, I was just trying to be helpful. Well, I was just trying to make you feel better. Well, I was just a foot soldier. I was just driving the car. I was just doing my duty. I was just doing what was expected of me, which in my experience really is code for this is my self-justification. This is my self-justification for acting immorally. This is my self-justification for doing something illegal. This is my self-justification for giving up my vocation and acting, acting dishonorably or unkindly or being unforgiving and unloving toward you. When I say I just, what I really mean is I self-justifiably am going to say this to try and wiggle out of my responsibilities. 
But then it continues. Once when Lord Kitsushige was hunting at Shiroishi, he shot a large boar. Everyone came running up to see it and said, Well, 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 you have brought down an uncommonly large one. Suddenly the boar got up and dashed into their midst. All of them fled in confusion, but Nabashima Matabet drew his sword and finished it off. At that point, Lord Katsushige covered his face with his sleeve and said, Sure is dusty. This was presumably because he did not want to see the spectacle of his flustered men. (laughs) That's great. He covered his face with his sleeve and said, Sure is dusty out here. Oof, tough to breathe. Because he did not want his men to see his panic, and ultimately his cowardice. Saving face, literally trying to save face. It's easy to kill a large boar with a shot from a distance, with an arrow, with a spear. But then to be there on the ground right next to it and it jumps back up and starts dashing back and forth, trying to gore anybody in his path. And only one kept his wits about him. Only one had the courage to draw his sword and finish the animal off. And yet the hunter, Katsushige, he stood there and did nothing. Which, I'm going to play this out for myself. I'm not saying this is what the text is implying, but this is what I'm getting from it, at least in the moment, which is, it's easy to attack people from a distance. It's, uh, it's easy to attack the monsters the demons, the criminals, those who annoy us, those who we determine to be our enemies or our opponents, it's easy to attack them from a distance. It's easy to send a text message threatening someone. It's easy to post rude comments under somebody's post on social media. It's easy to call someone on the phone and cuss them out for some wrong that they did or didn't do to you. But then when they're right in your face, that's a whole nother matter. It's like Andy Stumpf says on Clearing Hot, and I, I think it's, it's good practice, which is never say anything on social media that you wouldn't say to someone if you were trapped in an elevator with them. And I try and embrace that in all aspects of my life, actually, not just social media, but email, text, phone, wherever it might be. I think that's a good practice. I think it's a good ethical practice and a good way to discipline your tongue, so to speak. Don't comment on social media. Don't text, tweet. Don't call someone and say something to them that you wouldn't say to their face if you were trapped in an elevator with them. Because it's easy to be brave from a distance. It's easy to be courageous from the rear echelon. It's easy to have all the right answers on Monday morning after the game's over. It's easy to second guess yourself after a big loss, or you thought you were winning. And then in the final round, your opponent rallied and you ended up being defeated. It's easy to get ahead of ourselves and to think that we're somebody we're not when the enemy is over there. It's a different thing altogether when you're within grabbing range of somebody or kicking range of somebody. When you have to own your own words because they're right in front of you now. 
And I've certainly said to more than a few people in the last five years as I've withdrawn more and more from social media. I know for some of you who follow me on Instagram, that might be shocking, the amount of stories that I post (laughs) during the day. But I have lots of friends who send me lots of things and then I post them on my stories. Again, there's that just again. I'm trying to justify myself. But I withdrew. I deleted my Twitter account. I deleted my personal blog. I withdrew from Facebook and deactivated my account for a long time. And now I'm only on there for business reasons. And I did that primarily because of the overall ugliness and vitriol and negativity that I was being exposed to. I exposed myself to, I should say. I exposed myself to that every day over and over and over again. And it affected me very, very negatively. I had anxiety problems. I was melancholy a lot, depressed a lot, second guessing myself a lot, really down on myself a lot. Because as much as you or I may say, we don't care about other people's opinions. And even though that may be true in principle, when it's a constant stream of negative comments, a constant stream of insults and abusive language, it can make you second guess yourself at a certain point. It can make you walk away and like embody that and hold on to that stuff. And it can affect us. It can affect our sleep. It can affect the way that we interact with other people in real life. It can affect the way that we eat. You're down, you're depressed, you're feeling bad about yourself. So you just grab a bag of Doritos and down the whole thing in one sitting. Then you feel bad about doing that. And it becomes this perpetual motion machine of negativity and depression and self-abuse. When all you really have to do is just sign out, just deactivate, walk away, turn your phone off. And so I've definitely said to more than a few people over the last five years, here's my address. If you have a real problem with me, come knock on my front door and we'll handle this like men. And I'm not saying, hey, let's have a fight in the street. No, that's juvenile. I'm saying, let's talk this out face to face, like men. Say to me in person what you seem so free to write to me or to text to me in a private message. Come say that to my face. If you can't, Why are you saying it? It's easy to be brave from a distance when there's no physical concrete threat. But a lot of brave men online, for example, are cowards in real life. I know because I've tracked them down. They didn't want to come to me, so I went and found them. And everyone was super nice to me and shook my hand and smiled with a big toothy grin whenever I had an opportunity to interface with them. And then when I called them to account for what they said online, they said, well, you know, I just, and there it is again, that justification. Try and wiggle out of responsibility for your words. And I don't know, I'm, I'm old school in that sense that I, uh, if a man is only as good as his word, and if you say it, mean it, and if you mean it, do it. And if you don't, then don't say it. Because someday someone's going to hold you accountable for those words. And you're going to be exposed. So say what you mean, mean what you say, do it, show up. Not just one time, but consistently. So that way when you kill the giant boar and you think it's dead, and then you go up alongside of it and it jumps up, you can just draw your sword and cut it down again. And that way you don't end up having to cover your face to save face and making up excuses like sure is dusty out here, oof. I would have killed that pig myself, but I can't see. It's just so dusty. So now another story about Lord Katsushige. 
When Lord Katsushige was young, he was instructed by his father, Lord Naoshige, quote, for practice in cutting, execute some men who have been condemned to death, unquote. <laughs> so to practice cutting with your sword, cut off the heads of men who have been condemned to death. <laughs> Thus, in the place that is now within the western gate, ten men were lined up, and Katsushige continued to decapitate one after another until he had executed nine of them. When he came to the tenth, he saw that the man was young and healthy and said, I'm tired of cutting now. I'll spare this man's life. And the man's life was saved. Hmm. I think you can take that one of two ways. Either he came to his senses and after nine executions, he, he basically, uh, what do you want to say? He was moved and looked at the tenth man and said, this man is young. I think, you know, I'm tired of cutting. I'm tired. I'm tired of executing men. This man's young. I think he can still live a good life. I think I'm going to show him leniency. I'm going to show him mercy. And hopefully that'll change him. That'll set him on the, the straight and narrow path of being a law-abiding citizen. But I don't think that's what he's saying here based on the previous anecdote about the giant boar. I think what he's saying here is that Lord Katsushige just got sick of killing and it sickened him. He didn't have a stomach for it anymore and he saw that man who was young and he healthy and said, well, I can't really justify killing this man now. So what I'll say instead of, you know what, I don't think this guy deserves to die or he's young and the others weren't young and I didn't care about them. I wasn't moved to mercy for them, but this guy's so young. Let's give him a chance. I'll just say, you know what? I'm tired. My arms hurt. Cutting is such hard work with an incredibly sharp sword that slices right through a man's neck with as much trouble as one of my knives cuts through a piece of paper. I'll spare this man's life. Sure. Maybe it was altruism. Maybe it was just, again, cowardice, weakness. It's easy to kill a boar from a distance. It's hard to kill one when they're up close. It's easy to kill men when their hands and their feet are bound up and they can't stand up and run away or fight back. So when someone is helpless, and this goes back to the original anecdote about the foot soldier and the servant, when someone is quote-unquote below you, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. It is literally a condescending sense because I'm putting someone below me, condescending. But you recognize someone is helpless or weak. Someone is fragile or vulnerable, emotionally, physically, whatever it might be. Do you take advantage of them because they're vulnerable? Or do you seek ways that you can help them, strengthen them, encourage them, motivate them to get back up and to go the right way? to make healthier decisions, to find people that are better for them, that will help them grow. How often, and I know in my own life I'm guilty of this in the past for sure, and it was something that took me a long time to get over because I was essentially taught this by my family. But when I saw people in the past that I judged to be weak, vulnerable, passive, I saw them as being, well, disgust is the word that comes to mind. I was disgusted by their weakness. I was disgusted by their vulnerability and their fragility. I was disgusted that they needed my help. 
I was disgusted that they let people walk all over them and take advantage of them. And I was so disgusted by them that I walked all over them and took advantage of them too. Just to show them a lesson, I thought. When in reality, the reason I was disgusted by their weakness, their fragility, their vulnerability, is because I was weak and fragile and vulnerable. The difference was that I used drugs and alcohol, criminal activity, abusive behavior towards myself and others to mask my own vulnerability, my own fragility, and my own weakness. Because I didn't want to confront myself. So I confronted myself in others And therefore, rather than destroy myself, I sought to destroy other people. We see this all the time in politics, by the way, especially in the present tense. This is September 27th, 2020, and we're about a month out from the elections. Politicians will engage in transference, where they project onto their opponent the things that they themselves are guilty of. And therefore, if they say about their opponent, he's a criminal, he's a liar, you can't trust him, he's immoral, he's corrupt, they're more than likely talking about themselves, but they're trying to distract you by projecting all that onto their opponent and making you think, ah, he or she is the bad apple. He or she is the corrupt one. We can't vote for them. And then you vote for the corrupt, immoral politician. Plenty of experiences that I'm sure we could all cite for that one. But we all do that all the time. Usually we're unaware of it because we're not self-aware because we don't want to step back and detach and take a good hard look at ourselves. But the fact of the matter is when I was weak and vulnerable and fragile when I was younger and put myself in relationships to further weaken myself, make myself more vulnerable because I surrounded myself with people who were taking advantage of me as I was taking advantage of them. We were using each other. They abused me. I abused them. It further weakened us. And it becomes, again, this perpetual motion machine, this cycle of violence and abuse and self-destructive behaviors. And rather than confront that and stop yourself before you reach terminal velocity and you end up going crazy, going to prison or dead, you just keep pursuing it and you find even more abusive people, people that are even more enslaved to alcohol and drugs, people that are even more self-destructive than you. And in the way that you build up a tolerance to drugs and alcohol, you build up a tolerance to self-destructive behaviors at the same time. So maybe when you begin drinking or using, you're around other people who drink and use, but they're not on the same trajectory as you are. They're just having a drink. They're just binge drinking on the weekends. They're doing stuff that kids do or they're in a low spot in their life and they're self-medicating. But once they get a new job or they find a new relationship or whatever it might be, they quit. Whereas you continue down that path and you build up a tolerance for alcohol, you build up a tolerance for drugs, you build up a tolerance for the kinds of people that use alcohol and drugs excessively, abusively. And before you know it, you go from smoking pot with somebody to smoking crack with somebody. And you go from smoking crack with somebody to being in a shooting gallery and using heroin and then using meth. And you go from some people that sneak off into the woods on a weekend to have a party, a bonfire to driving around, drinking, to shutting down the bar every night of the week, to illegal activity, breaking into people's houses, robbing people for money to buy drugs with. And the people that you started this with, they're long gone. They don't want to have anything to do with illegal 
activity. They don't want to have anything to do with criminality. But you're a criminal now. And you don't understand why they won't hang out with you or go out with you anymore. And why they don't invite you over anymore for parties. And why the people that you hang around with are always on the run from the cops. And why you're in court all the time. <laughs> and why your parents won't answer your phone calls anymore. Or your family's you know, staging an intervention for the fifth time. We don't start off full-blown alcoholics and addicts. We don't start off saying, hey, let's get engaged so that we can have an incredibly violent, messy divorce in 12 years. You don't have kids so that you can say to yourself, well, in three or four years, I'm going to start beating them. And I'm going to project all of my fears and insecurities, all of the demons that I haven't uh, dealt with in my own head. I'm going to project those onto my kids. And I'm going to use my kids as a whipping post for my demons. We don't start there. We start with hopes. We start with expectations. We have dreams that we want to see realized. And then slowly but surely they're bent and twisted and perverted until they don't even resemble the original starting point anymore. We don't resemble those people anymore. And then we end up saying things like, sure is dusty in here. Or, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. And then lastly, Lord Katsushige always used to say that there are four kinds of retainers. They are the quick, then lapping. The lagging, then quick. The continually quick. And the continually lagging. The continually quick are men who, when given orders, will undertake their execution quickly and settle the matter well. Fukuchi, Kichi, Zaimon, and the like resemble this type. The lagging then quick are men who, though lacking in understanding when given orders, prepare quickly and bring the matter to a conclusion. I suppose that Nakano, Kazuma, and men similar are like this. The quick then lagging are men who, when given orders, seem to be going to settle things but in their preparation, take time and procrastinate. There are many people like this. Other than these, one could say that the rest are continually lagging. Four types of men. The continually click quick. When they're told what to do, when they're given orders, they execute on those orders quickly and they settle the matter well. They, they, they do it, they do it well, and then they're on to the next task. Those are rare people, in my opinion, in my experience, to receive the order, to execute the order quickly, and to settle the matter well. Not just to settle matters, not just to do what you've been told to do, but to do it well. That's a rare person. Those are, those are a few and far between. Because you need understanding. But this goes back again to the four vows. That I got to serve somebody, I got to have a master. And once I know who my master is, and I'm indebted to that master, I'm obligated to, to obey that master's directions, when they give me instructions, do I undertake those instructions without question, without a second, second, um, a second's doubt? Do I second guess my master's decision? Do I walk out of the room 
And in my own head, say to myself, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he, why would he want me to do that? Well, that's dumb. Why would he send me to do that that way? What a stupid plan. Who is this guy? I can't believe I work for this guy. No, instead, you hear the order and then you execute it. And no matter what the order is, you seek to settle the matter well. So that even if the order that you're given doesn't make sense to you, you play the cards you're dealt and you make the best of the situation and you settle the matter well. Maybe you completely disagree with what your boss or your superior says. And yet you execute the plan quickly and you settle it well because you figure out how do I interpret these directions in such a way that I bring about the best possible result for myself and everybody else on the team, in the room, whatever it might be. But to be able to receive instruction, undertake its execution quickly then, act on it quickly, even if you disagree with it, and then end up in a place that both the person who gives you the order, the people that are carrying out the order with you, and those who are receiving the action, the activity of that order, everyone is, it's all settled well. So then when you go back to your master, you go back to your boss, you go back to your CEO, whoever it might be, you can say to them, this is it. This is how I did it. It's done. And they can say, well done. That's good. I like that. Versus, well, that's dumb. I'm not going to do it. Or I'm going to argue with you because I disagree with what you just said. Or I disagree with the execution of it. No. Get the order. Undertake the order quickly. Execute. <coughs> do what's necessary. Talk about Jocko Willink and extreme ownership and the four rules of combat. And settle the matter well. Then there's the lagging the lagging then quick. Men who, though lacking in understanding when given orders, prepare quickly and bring the matter to a conclusion. They don't settle the matter well. Notice that's not the language here. They prepare quickly. They execute on it quickly. They don't understand the orders, but they do what they're told, and they bring the matter to a conclusion. So they lag behind in understanding, but they're quick in execution. But then if the orders are bad, if they're illegal, if they're immoral, if they're, if they're violent and aggressive and they lead to the harm and hurt of those who, let's say, are weak and fragile and vulnerable or not, do you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it? No, not in this case, not in this category. That's not the point, though. You are told what to do, you do it quickly, and you resolve the matter. You get things done. That's your that's your character. That's your place within the dynamic of the group. You're somebody who gets things done. You don't always understand why you're doing what you do, but you do it anyways, because you're loyal to your master. It's one of your vows. Then there's the quick then lagging. That is that when they're given an order, they seem to be going on to settle things, but then in their preparation, they take too much time and they procrastinate. There's lots of people like that. Here's what you're, you're supposed to do. Here's what you're going to do. Now go do it. And then you say, okay, give me, give me a couple hours. Give me a couple days. Give me the week to draw up a plan and to get everybody on the team on the same page so that we can execute on this plan to the best of our abilities and really, you know, do what we can to make you and your plan successful. Great. 
But then when you go to prepare, you get bogged down in details. You start thinking of all these alternative scenarios for carrying out the plan. Or you're afraid of failing, so you procrastinate and you put off executing on the plan because you're not quite sure that the plan is going to work. Paralysis by analysis. There are a lot of people like this. I think just practically. You look at a situation and say, okay, I've got this bad habit. I smoke. Okay, I got to quit smoking. I got to quit smoking. 100%, I got to quit smoking. You know it. You got to do it. So what do I need to do? I'm going to go online and I'm going to try and find a counselor, a therapist. I'm going to go online and do some self-research and figure out, well, what's the best way to quit smoking? I'll listen to other people's testimonials on YouTube about how they quit smoking. I'll call up friends or family who I know quit smoking. And then when you're doing all that, man, you get that itch to have that cigarette. In fact, I tell people the hardest drug for me to quit other than sugar was cigarettes. I could give up opiates and I could give up alcohol easier than I could give up cigarettes. Because for me, cigarettes weren't just a chemical addiction, not just a, a psychological addiction, but it was a physical addiction of having that cigarette in my hand and having something between me and people that I was talking to as a kind of like wall. And it was psychological. When I was happy, smoked a cigarette. When I was down, smoked a cigarette. When I was anxious, smoked a cigarette. Doesn't matter. There's always a good reason to smoke a cigarette. And I loved, I loved my Camel Lights. I did. I loved my American Spirits. Loved them. Loved them. And to this day, I think last week, yeah, last week I was at the gym training. The doors were open. And somebody was out in the alley behind the gym smoking a cigarette. And it just sent me to a place... I was distracted for like 30 seconds and I was teaching a class and just for 30 seconds, I was just in a different place, different time, different me. And I wasn't going to go out and bum a smoke and I wasn't tempted to go buy a pack of cigarettes on my way home. None of that. I'm way, that's way behind me. But I became nostalgic for the person that I was when I smoked cigarettes. And yet I hate the person that I was when I smoked cigarettes. In fact, I killed the person that I was when I smoked cigarettes. He's dead dead and buried. And I'm the one who held the shovel and threw the dirt on his face. But the power of that addiction to reach deep, deep, deep into my subconscious and to find those little glowing embers of that, that, that memory of that cigarette. And then it just comes rushing to the front of my brain. And then the memories and the nostalgia, and, oh, that smells so good. People that get to that spot, and then say, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit tomorrow. I'm going to quit next week. I'm going to quit when I get a chance to go to my doctor and get a prescription for the patch or something. Well, I'm going to quit when I can get in to see a counselor. Well, I'm going to quit when I can find a group, a support group. Just quit. Just quit. Period. Don't procrastinate. Don't prepare. Just quit. The first 48 hours of the worst the first week, it's rough. It is, uh, you know, I white knuckled it. But after that, it gets easier. And you got to replace that cigarette with something else. You just got to replace it with something else. And that's going to take time because you got to build new muscles. Because all of the effort, all of the attention, all the focus on smoking a cigarette, for example, has to be redirected to something else that you've not devoted any time or energy or money to. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a curve there. 
and it's it's a rough one. But once you get through it, you recognize, okay, this was making me weak. This was making me fragile and vulnerable. This was destroying me, and I was doing it to myself. I allowed it to do it to me. And since I don't feel like being self-destructive anymore, and I don't want to harm myself, and I don't want to put myself in a situation to further harm myself, I have to identify the enemy. And this is the enemy. Not all of our enemies are breathing. Not all of them are flesh and blood. In fact, most of my enemies are inanimate objects. <laughs> but they're tools. A cigarette, a gun, a hammer, a car, a black belt, a pair of gloves, whatever it might be, a paycheck. There are lots of enemies out there that will be happy to enslave us for all the wrong reasons. And then we will serve them quickly, without understanding, in order to bring this matter to its conclusion, which is, I want to get high. I want to feel good about myself again. I want to feel loved. I want to feel like God loves me again. I want to feel forgiven. I want to be able to go to sleep at night and actually dream I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to be a victim anymore. And the only way to do that is to understand why you don't want to feel that way anymore, then execute on it quickly and settle the matter well. You know, when people say, well, I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. What should I do? And unfortunately, my spirit animal is Jocko Willink. So I say, get out of bed in the morning. Well, it's not that easy. Yes, actually it is. You literally just sit up, put your feet on the floor and stand up. It's that easy. You're making it not easy because you don't want to get out of bed. So once you recognize and once you accept that the only person that's not making this easy is you, you can attack yourself. And the way that you attack yourself, attack your weakness, is by getting out of bed in the morning and declaring war on your weakness. And I'm pretty sure that's in Discipline Equals Freedom, a field manual. <laughs> I have it on my playlist, so it's actually my alarm, and I listen to it when I'm hitting a giant tire with a sledgehammer in my backyard. So it's pretty much just a part of the liturgy of my brain now. <laughs> and maybe you have the same problem. You listen to Jocko long enough, it just becomes your language, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in my opinion. But it is. It's that simple. How do I start working out? You start working out. How do I get out of bed in the morning? You get out of bed. How do I start eating healthy? You start eating healthy. And slowly but surely, you start replacing all of the unhealthy food in your cupboards with healthy food. So then you don't have to worry about eating healthy. You just do. You get up and you make your bed. And pretty soon, that's just what you do. You make your bed. You get up and you exercise and you walk to the end of the block, or you walk around the block. And slowly but surely, you start to jog, and from jogging, you start to go further, and you start to do hill runs. Maybe you do a half marathon or a 5K. But like everything, you have to make up your mind, I'm going to do this. Otherwise, you're going to defeat yourself every time, because you're not going to recognize or admit that your worst enemy is yourself. And then, just when you think that pig is dead, 
just when you think you're past that addiction, you've gone through the worst of it, you're clean and sober, you got out of that terrible relationship, you got discharged and it's all behind you now, and you left it all back there on the other side of the ocean, you have a moment, you have one of those moments, like I said, when you smell that cigarette smoke, you have that moment when you smell the desert air again, you have that moment when you look in someone's eyes and it throws you thousands of miles in the other direction to someone else's eyes, whatever it might be. And now you're in that spot again where you're weak and you're vulnerable. Now you're exposed. And have you developed good habits to fall back on or do you fall back on bad habits? Do you make excuses like it sure is dusty? (laughs) Do you say things like, well, I'm tired of cutting people's heads off now. Maybe you are, but do you know why? If you haven't confronted the why, it's going to be hard to remember your vows, your obligations and responsibilities to yourself and others. It's going to be difficult to remember that there's more to life than what's just in front of you in the moment. And to me, those are when we relapse. Those are when we fall back into those terrible habits where we lash out at other people, we attack ourselves, we self-harm, we harm others, we project the worst aspects of ourselves on other people and make them a scapegoat or make them a Trojan horse for our emotions. But going back to the very preface of the Hagakure then to remind us Loyalty, devotion, purity, selflessness. If these philosophies, if these four principles, these four vows of the samurai, if this is something that appeals to us in the present tense, we want to be loyal, loyal husband and wife, loyal child, loyal coworker, loyal team member. If we want to live a life of devotion, devotion to our God, devotion to our friends and family, devotion to our comrades in arms. If we want to live a life of purity, that purity comes at a cost. We must sacrifice our cravings because our cravings inevitably lead us to our addictions. If we want to be pure, and I don't mean pure in the holier-than-thou sense, the negative sense. I mean pure in the sense of untainted, by those things that will affect us in such a way that we're not selfless, but rather we're acting selflessly or selfishly because we're satisfying our cravings, which is inherently selfish. And how can we be loyal to others? How can we be devoted to others? How can we be selfless if we're not pure? And pure in the sense of what can I do to free myself from slavery to chemical addiction? or social addictions, relationship addictions, whatever bad habits interfere with you pursuing and embracing and manifesting loyalty, devotion, selflessness, and purity in your own life. And if you're not willing to live a pure life, then why are you pursuing these philosophies in the first place? Because you're just lying to yourself at that point. And then it's just well, I want to be pure. It's just that. No, 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 no. I want to be pure. It's just that I'm self-justifying and making up excuses 
for why I'm not willing to sacrifice my own desire for pleasure, my own cravings for the sake of other people. My kids, and I don't just mean my kids in in the biological sense, I mean my kids at church, my kids at the gym, they look at me as an adult. They look at the way that I behave. They look at the way that I dress. They look at the way that I groom. They look at the way that I talk. And I'm not saying I'm a paragon of virtue. I'm definitely not. But I want to be able to say to my kids, I've done everything I can today to live a pure life. Meaning, I don't get drunk. I don't use drugs to self-medicate. I drink a lot of coffee. I drink coffee. I don't drink a lot of coffee anymore either. Another one of those things. I'm like, I'll drink one big cup in the morning and then I won't drink any more coffee. I used to drink six cups a day, usually a pot or a French press every day. And then I saw that as being, again, a part of that addictive behavior, that addictive personality that I have. And so how do I cut back? Buy better quality coffee. Figure out how to brew it better. Figure out how to curb that appetite for more caffeine throughout the day. Conquer that addiction. But to me, those are little things. Those are little battles that we can all win. Those are little victories. But yet, those little victories, as always, add up to big victories later on. Because if I can conquer my addiction to coffee and yet still enjoy coffee, then I can conquer my addiction to having to be right and admit when I'm wrong. I can conquer my addiction to going it alone and being able to admit I need help a lot with a lot of different things. And I think probably for me, one of the deepest, darkest um, flaws of my character is not being able to laugh at myself. I take myself too seriously. And so being able to laugh at my flaws and walk away from that and not carry that with me for days and weeks and months and nurture resentments over it. That's a, that's a constant battle for me for sure. But it all starts with loyalty. Who am I loyal to and why? Devotion. Who have I devoted my life to and why? Purity. Why purity? What does purity offer me that impurity doesn't? And then selflessness living for others, serving others, being loyal to others. What benefit is it for me to live a selfless life versus a selfish life? Because most of the people I know live a selfish life. I'm selfish. We're all selfish. But why strive to be selfless? What what benefit is that to us to be selfless? And what is the benefit then, like Yamamoto says, to living in the present moment with a strong and clear mind? Well, how can I be in the present moment with a strong and clear mind if I'm not clear on what loyalty, devotion, purity, and selflessness is and then act on it. It's like the Stoics said, don't debate philosophy, embody it. And I think that's the important thing with all of these readings is these are not intended to be read and then intellectually digested and then we walk away. The Hagakure, Beowulf, the, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Um, what else have we read? You name it. They're all meant to be embodied. The Stoic Warriors Triad, Boshido, even going all the way back to those first episodes on Cyrus the Great. 
the the thing that attracted me to these men or these books was that ultimately this is not an intellectual exercise only, but that the trajectory here, the goal is to embody these principles, embody these philosophies, so that we don't talk about the philosophy, we are the philosophy. We don't have to talk about it because we're doing it. I'm not going to talk about making my bed. I just make my bed. And then when you ask me, what does that look like? I just point at my bed. When I say live a pure life and someone wants to know what that looks like, I have to be able to point at myself or at the very least point at how I'm pursuing a pure life and a life of selflessness. Because if I can't point at myself and I'm always talking about it, what am I other than a hypocrite? And like I said, even to go deeper than that, a coward who projects out on the world a brave, courageous personality, but in his heart doesn't actually have any intention whatsoever of pursuing these philosophies in such a way that he embodies them. That's cowardice, in my opinion. And those are the worst kind of people because you can't trust them. You can't trust them because they are lying to themselves first and foremost. And ultimately, like we said, the whole the whole thesis of the Hagakure is to conquer fear, to transcend fear. Why loyalty, devotion, purity, and selflessness? Why live in the present moment with a strong, clear mind? To transcend fear. What is the greatest enemy of a warrior? Fear. What is the greatest enemy of every human being who has ever lived? Fear. Fear of suffering, fear of struggle, fear of death. Why do we quit before we begin? Why do we talk about our bad habits and complain about how we need to change our lives, but then we don't? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of suffering. We're afraid of struggling. We're afraid of death. And death makes cowards of us all. Fear of death and fear of struggling and suffering make cowards of us all. So how do we transcend that fear? You have to face it. You have to struggle. You have to suffer. You have to confront death, not in the abstract, not as an intellectual exercise, but in concrete reality. When I say we're going to the gym to simulate murder, I'm not joking. That's what jujitsu is. You have to confront your own mortality. And you do that by going through pain, through struggle. Now that, again, like I said in the sermon this morning, that doesn't mean that you pray and ask God to give you hardships, to bring hardship upon you. But you also don't pray to God for an easy life either. Rather, you accept that life is hard and that life is a wrestling match, not a dance. And that every day that you choose to put your feet on the ground, you've chosen to fight. And that that essentially is what living is. Living is not running away from death. Living is accepting that death is a constant companion And there's nothing you can do to escape it. So learn to live with it. So that then when death comes, you meet it. And for myself, for example, because I do believe in the resurrection from the dead, I don't believe that death is the final word. I believe that Jesus' words are the final words. I am the resurrection and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So that even though a man dies, yet he doesn't die. That's what I believe. And whether you believe it or not, that's okay. It's what I believe. It's what 
sets me free to confront death and to live with death. That I believe that a man died and rose from the dead three days later. And that when he says, I am the resurrection and life, even though a man dies, yet he will live. I believe that about him. And I believe he did that. And that's my faith. That's my belief. And it allows me, it frees me in the present tense to not focus on myself and to say, hey, someone else, God, did something that I can't do. That's impossible for me. He did it for me. And that sets me free then to live for other people and not worry about myself. Because ultimately my question was when I was 23 years old, 24, is there a God? And the conclusion I came to was, yeah, there is. And I actually came to that conclusion through reading philosophy and science, hard science, physics, chemistry, biochemistry in particular, astrophysics, even cell biology. That's how I came to that conclusion. I came to believe in a higher power. I came to believe in a God. I pursued that line of inquiry. Which God do I believe in? What God do I believe in? Why do I believe? And that by and by, it led me to a place where I could be free from worry about myself. I could live with death and I could embrace suffering and struggle and recognize that, yeah, life is hard. It's supposed to be hard. And that there's something transcendent, though, in all of that. And that ultimately that fear that always threatens to cripple us and enslave us and drive us to the worst kinds of behavior towards ourselves and each other, most of it's in our own minds. And we allow it to run free. It's our choice. Just like it's our choice to cage it up, domesticate it, use it as fuel, but I've gone on long enough. I think that in the end is really what attracted me to the warrior ethos. Reading the book, the warrior ethos by Stephen Pressfield to begin with gates of fire and his other books. It's what attracted me to the warrior culture, the warrior class, the warrior ethos in the first place, which is that strip everything else away, strip everything away. The desire to pursue combat martial arts, the desire to clean up my diet and my habits, my desire to be a better husband and father and pastor and everything. Strip all that away so that none of that's there. And if you ask me why I do this podcast or why I read what I read or why I like having these discussions, at root, it's because I think I've said before, One day, I just decided I was sick of being afraid. I was tired of being scared. Afraid of people. Afraid of myself. Afraid of taking chances. Afraid of failure. Afraid of laughing at myself. Afraid of what other people might think. Afraid of suffering and struggling. Afraid of dying. And I think if we can get to that point where we strip everything back, strip everything away, And look at the nut, the kernel of truth that drives all of our decisions, all of our choices, good, bad, or otherwise. I think what we'll find at the root of all that is fear. Maybe fear mixed with shame, but fear. And so the benefit for me of reading the Hagakure, for example, then, 
and everything that I've read the past 64 episodes has really been to grapple with fear, but ultimately death. And to learn how to live with death, which seems like a paradox, and it is, but that's the only way that I know to truly live, is to find true life. And the only place that I've ever found true life is in the midst of death. So I'll leave you with that thought then until we talk again on Wednesday. That the only true life is found in the midst of death. Because that's where life, well, yeah, that's where he's at. So that's all I got. Thank you, as always, for listening to my ruminations, my thinking out loud. I hope that it benefits you in some way, gets you thinking. Otherwise, I will talk to you again on Wednesday for the midweek debrief. I think we gotta we got to address the law enforcement thing. I've been thinking about it a lot. I got a lot to say about it. I've been waiting for the right moment when my thoughts are kind of clear enough to string together something coherent. But I think we got to talk about this. Otherwise, as always, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing it with others and pointing others to the show. The shirts are on the way. I've got some thing rolling now. I've got a local print shop so that I could probably, hopefully, get more shirts printed up than I was going to have printed up before just because of costs. So that's all there. I promise you it's it's going forward. It is. It's just trying to get everything lined up so that I can not only just do this once, but I can do this, well, continuously for both the podcast and the gym. So it'll, it'll, I hope, I hope that it'll be worth the wait. No, I know. I know that it'll be worth the wait. So thank you to everybody who keeps telling me they want me to put aside a shirt for them. Uh, <laughs> I have to get as many shirts made up to give away for free as I do now. have to get made up to sell at this point. So <laughs> thank you for that. I appreciate the enthusiasm and the excitement. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Peace.